But in terms of loneliness, uh, is, that, is that what the question was? Basically. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's pretty sad. Get a cat. I don't have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Also, don't get a cat because it'll die if you don't take care of it. But yeah. Oh, hey, everyone, and welcome to Her Royal Science. Let's get started with today's interview. We'll be talking to a phenomenal young engineer, talking about the ups and downs of a PhD and the trepidation one might feel being a very visible minority. She's one of my good friends, and we live on opposite ends of the continent, so I'm pretty excited to catch up. And since I'm not entirely familiar with PhD degrees in the US, much less in engineering, let's start with the very basics. Did you have to do any courses for your PhD? Yeah, so we had to do um, a couple of courses, I, I believe, that like were core classes. Okay. But like I was mentioning before, our department's pretty small. Mm -hmm. So by virtue of that, the number of professors that are available are pretty small. So it's, you don't really get the kind of course that you want until later on. Mm -hmm. So I got some advice my first year that like, so you're supposed to take all your classes in the first two years and then maybe not do that much research and mm -hmm. then do like all research the next three years. Um, but I got some advice my first year by somebody like an older person who had done their PhD many years ago. They were saying that classes are sound annoying to your PI, but they're actually really good for you because yeah. one, they keep you exposed to the community. You have to go see a certain group of like classmates every once in a while. Mm -hmm. And then also topically, they keep you like up to date, right? It's like if you're so focused into your research, maybe you won't be reading about such and yeah. such topics. So I kind of spread them out a little bit. But okay. one nice thing is that once you finish your classes, you get a master's degree. So you have a master's. Uh, yeah, I got it this this year, which was a lot later than most people, but I got it. So yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Was it a bit of a relief once you finished that? The relief part is that we get a pay increase after we get Ooh. that to that. So that, that was really, really nice. But yeah, it's definitely uh, been uh, kind of a struggle towards the whole thing of the non-linear nature of everybody's experiences. Mm -hmm. So in a department when there's certain standards and timelines for everybody, it's really easy to get overwhelmed and mm -hmm. be like, well, this person's already done this. This person already has these papers so it's yeah. really easy to become alienated in a community where they're the ones who are supposed to like understand and you, support you yeah, and, and support you yeah. exactly and like even within the group maybe within the close group of friends that you have so that's definitely been something I'd have to like manage of being mm -hmm. like I'm on my own path everybody's on their own path which is I think something that a lot of grad students feel I don't yeah. think anyone feels like they're at the top of their class because when you're an undergrad I think you have such tangible yeah, assessments exactly. of yeah, how yeah. you're performing yeah whether it's I don't know your GPA or something that your professor says of you know everyone performed in this kind of bell-shaped right. curve and yeah you have to be on the upper <laughs> exactly. end of that yeah, curve. Yeah. but otherwise in grad school there's no there's no metric. Yeah. There's no yeah. like, I am acing grad yeah. school right And now. the metrics that potentially exist, which is like number of papers, mm -hmm. conferences, all these things are not, they're not equally weighted. So mm -hmm. like you can have three really stupid papers versus like one quality paper that takes you like five years to get, yes. right? So it's like, it just because somebody has so many papers or somebody doesn't have papers, mm -hmm. it doesn't really mean anything. And I feel like when you start, nobody tells you this. They no. just tell you they're like, oh. You, you need, need papers. so many papers yes. and you're like, how to write a paper, you know? So there's, I, I definitely feel like if, and this is something that I try to do both with people in my group and also people in the department, that like people who come in, it's really important to like let them know what's coming because mm -hmm. I feel like you don't really, like nobody tells you about a PhD life in undergrad because you just assume, right? You just assume it's the same. You take classes, mm -hmm. you do go into lab, but it's so different. It is. So it different. is. 
yeah, not only are the actual requirements different, but I think the expectations and the interpersonal relationships are Absolutely. dramatically different. Yeah. And the way that a principal investigator or a PI can treat an undergrad is also very different in terms of what they expect. Mm-hmm. But they don't say that yeah. at the very it's beginning. It's unspoken rules, right? Yeah, it's unspoken. <laughs> yeah. And then you kind of feel bad because you know you're underperforming, but you don't know how. Yeah. And... I don't know if it's something that we all feel, but sometimes you feel like you can't ask. You mm. can't be like, so what is it that you actually need me to do? Yeah. And a lot of people who I find, I don't know if you've experienced this too, but people who end up in grad school are often perfectionists mm. and they want to do well and they want to exceed beyond the expectations of their supervisors in many respects, mm. or at least, at least be passable. Mm-hmm. Unlike undergrad where you have people who are like, you know what? I'm okay with C's. Or, you know what, if I failed something, yeah. I'll do it in some school. <laughs> yeah. And then you have the other people who are like, no, I cannot not get an A. Yeah. Or if I fall below this GPA, my life is over and I mm-hmm. can't go home because I'm really disappointed in myself. And sometimes it has nothing to do with everybody else. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in grad school, I just, I don't know if I ever found anybody who knew exactly what their PI wanted or needed. Mm-hmm. Partly because PIs don't tell you, but also because <laughs> I think as students, we don't want to ask all mm-hmm. the time because mm-hmm. you feel like you're supposed to know yeah sometimes I feel bad about not knowing an answer even though that's the whole point of science we're asking yeah. questions to try and figure out the answers as time goes on yeah but I don't know if that'll ever change in the culture I don't know we'll have to wait and see yeah. anyway so tell me about your research a little bit I do a lot of materials research, so Mm -hmm. I'm in mechanical engineering, but I work with a lot of biology. I do a lot of materials development. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very specifically, I think the theme that runs through almost all of the projects that I do is like nanotechnology, so Mm -hmm. like working on the nanoscale. Nanotechnology and mechanical engineering on the research level are very compatible, but as an undergraduate degree, at least where I got my undergraduate degree, uh, mechanical engineering was very much the classical, so like thermal fluids, like a lot of physics and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I uh, did a lot of extra stuff for my undergrad degree. And I took this elective, which was an intro to nanotechnology class with a professor who, and I stayed at the same institution for my graduate school. So she has come up in my life multiple times. But at the time when I was taking that class, it was like a really stressful time. And she was always such a beacon of like kindness to me. Oh. So it's, it's really nice to have her. But anyways, so nanotechnology, which is like a buzzword that you may have heard in mm-hmm. the news, but basically when you make things really small, so nano, um, I like to do this in outreach. So nano, a single nanometer is about three carbon atoms. So it's very, very small. When you talk about nanoparticles mm-hmm. or nano emulsions or something, you're talking about particulates of matter that have only a couple of different atoms. And so the biggest thing with nanotechnology is once you get really small, the surface area to volume ratio really changes. Mm-hmm. So on the bulk scale, you have significantly more volume than you have surface area. Mm-hmm. And so forces that are specific to the uh Uh, the volume, so like the body forces, like for example, gravity, are really important on the macro scale. Macro being like greater than a millimeter, so like me, you, table, chair, all these things, right? Mm -hmm. But then on the nanoscale, things are really different. So there's a lot of chemical interactions, lots of different things that are happening. And so, and also most significantly, you can't see them with your eye because they're smaller than the wavelength of light. So you have to develop different techniques to see them and stuff. So, yeah. What's your science story? How did you get to this portion of, of your life and in your career yeah. as a PhD student at this point, or PhD candidate since yeah. you've already done your calls? Yeah. I used to have a mentor that always said that everybody has a non-linear path to where they are right now. And it's, you know, especially for the women, especially for the minorities that I've talked to, it's never been like, oh, well, I was interested in this, so I followed this, yeah. and then I did this. <laughs> it, like, doesn't really happen to us that way. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it does, I don't know, maybe I haven't met enough people. But anyways... <laughs> 
Uh, so, I mean, I, I come from a Middle Eastern background, so my math and my sciences were very strong just because that's what got nurtured by, like, virtue of the culture and everything. Mm-hmm. And so I was really good at math and science, but I never understood that engineering was a path for me just because, like, I thought medicine, like, more of the softer sciences were a better fit. So two summers before my undergrad at the my mosque community, I met this woman who was working. The further I get from that time point, the more I forget about what she was doing exactly. But basically, she was in a NASA adjacent program in which she was developing um, products to prevent muscle atrophy for mm-hmm. astronauts that are in space. Wow. So basically, if you don't use your muscles, the muscle atrophies, and then you come back to Earth where gravity pulls you down and just things get messed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was, I just, I remember this conversation so clearly because it was such a nice, cor- like a, a cross-section between math, science, and then helping people, right? Like that was such a nice thing. So I applied for, uh, it just so happened that the, um, mechanical engineering department was connected to the aerospace department. So I had wanted to go into aerospace, but oh. I ended up have been the mechanical engineering. And then from there, um, and the story goes further back of like all the teachers that I had that kind of like gently prodded me left and right based mm-hmm. on, uh, you know, all the, all the things that happened. And then from there, uh, undergrad was pretty straightforward. I didn't really know what I was doing afterwards. Like I said, the department was more classical. Mm-hmm. And then I, I had really fantastic female mentors who I reached out to. Mm-hmm. Definitely that was something I had to do. I think that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't had the initiative to actually just go and talk to them and be like, I have no idea what I'm doing, mm-hmm. right? Like very honestly. And then, um, yeah, it kind of happened that I, after undergraduate, I had a research assistantship position for the summer after my undergraduate degree. And then I was able to start with my, my PhD. So it was definitely not the traditional path. I know it sounds a little bit traditional now that I, that I think about it. But like for me, at every time point, I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Mm. At the next step, I was like, well, I have like 50 things that I want to try. But like, I don't know if I have the opportunity to try them. Mm-hmm. And so it was really important for me to have mentors that were like, just try it. Like if, yeah. if you fail, you fail. Just try it, you know, just doesn't hurt to try so so were there moments where you did feel like being a female was a negative thing and that's why you did seek out those female role models at each junction mm-hmm. of your trajectory or mm-hmm. was it just something that happened stochastically I don't know I I ask myself this question I don't know if it's organic or not I do know that now I do reach out to female mentors because I know that if you have not the same, but similar trajectories mm-hmm. that you have similar struggles, very, very vague on the similar, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like the advice that they give you would be a little bit more relevant versus yeah. like somebody else who's, I don't want to say may had it easy, but maybe not gone through the same, like jumping over the same hoops. Right. Just be like, you know, just apply for this and try this. And then like, maybe it doesn't work that mm-hmm. that smoothly for me. So it's, it's, re- it's been really nice to have people who are like, okay, I understand. Therefore, do this to correct whatever, like, negative thing that comes with it. But uh, I think the first thing you asked was, is there been any negative things? I don't know. I don't know why I didn't consider engineering as an undergrad. But I will uh, kind of do a whole spiel about FIRST Robotics, which stands for for Inspiration and Recognition of Science and Technology. <laughs> so it's like FRC FIRST. Uh, some high schoolers might be familiar with the um, thing. So now as, you know, as the mentor, now that I go to the competitions and stuff, I see that like most of them are men or like male, right? The students are male. And like, I remember hearing that my high school had this program, but I had never heard of it. And like, I went to that high school. It was, I was never maybe... I don't know, like exposed to it, or maybe there was, you know, I wasn't going to where the flyers were. I don't know. But these things, you know, it happens once or twice, then you're like, oh, it's a coincidence. But it happens a lot of times and it happens to many people over different, with different experiences. And you wonder if there's like an, 
bias in the system, which of course there is, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, I don't know if these things were like outright, I was like led away from a certain path, but maybe I was just wasn't exposed to it, right? Because mm-hmm. there's always this thing where it's like there's less women in STEM, but that doesn't mean that women are worse at STEM. Like that logical fallacy is really bad. Talking about jumping through hoops mm-hmm. and that being a somewhat of a common thread for mm-hmm. women. What are the hoops that you feel you had to jump through? I feel like I have to say this before I say the rest of the sentence. I feel extremely privileged to have not had terrible experiences. Mm-hmm. I've had a family that's been extremely supportive of my you know, uh, endeavors in STEM, which is not always the case. Mm-hmm. I have a culture that really appreciates that. So that that's definitely like, that's really maybe made me blind to some of the small things that I miss. But, you know, as in um, like my experiences, some of these hoops might have been just things like, I remember so clearly in so many of my classes where I was definitely the only person of, you know, can I say hijab? Is that yeah, okay? Okay, okay. of course. I was definitely the only person wearing hijab, definitely in my department at the time, like my graduating class, that was definitely the case. Yeah. And then also very many times, especially in mechanical engineering, I was the only girl, maybe mm. in a big class, like not, these are not small classrooms, these are big classrooms. Mm. And I'm not saying this to toot my horn, but it's just saying that like, you're visible, you're extremely visible. So that's definitely like uh, maybe the hoops that I was talking about before. Again, I feel very privileged to not have like any serious hoops to run through, but it was definitely a lot of like, do I deserve this? Mm -hmm. Am I worthy of this? Like um, uh, maybe I'm dumber than everybody else. Maybe this is why this is happening, but it's just ubiquitous across the board. I think it's just really amplified Mm -hmm. um, by virtue of being kind of very seen and being like in the spotlight. Yeah, and it kind of goes both ways. You're aware of your own individuality and the fact that you're one of your own kind, but I think everyone else also is cognizant of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes points it out. I don't know if it, that's been the case for you, but people tend to commend themselves for allowing you to enter that space. Yeah, yeah. And it's not necessarily a compliment. I don't know if I would consider it a compliment in the truest sense, but the truth of the matter is one should not celebrate because yeah. one of us made yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we yeah. haven't made it because one of us is there. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, kind of just to to converse a bit about that whole topic, mm-hmm. there are times where I feel like, and this I know is compassion and really, really sweet, people look to me and go, wow, she made it. One of us made it to the other side. Oh, my goodness. This never happens. Mm-hmm. That inherently is very sad to me. Yeah, same. Yeah. <laughs> I feel that way. Like, there is... Um, my institution has these uh, flat, uh, just kind of like advertisement flags across as you go down the street mm-hmm. of the campus. And there's one with a female that's wearing a hijab mm-hmm. and on it, it says empower. And like to me, you know, I don't like this parallel thing of like, you know, being like, I am extremely empowered and yes. so are all of my friends. Yes. Like it has nothing to do with it. You know, this is kind of like putting the blame on us that like mm-hmm. I wasn't or like maybe I was strong enough, but that girl wasn't strong right. enough, right? But it's like, that's not the case at all. It's like everybody's working as hard as they can it's just the system introduces hurdles to people that are different than the average right yeah and a lot of people don't recognize those challenges Mm -hmm. and so the problem with that whole system though is if a person decides that they don't want to do it anymore Mm -hmm. I think there's an automatic assumption that has something to do with the visible differences and I thought about it even as a woman that if I chose to just drop out of science I'm now a part of the statistic it's because you're a woman not because you as a person just don't like whatever you're doing right right? so everywhere you go you're not yourself you're an identity that everybody else wants you to be yeah they want you to be the woman they want you to be the person of color they want you to be the person in hijab and sometimes you just don't 
not that's an the extreme type. amount of pressure. It's that's a an burden. Ex- yeah, yeah, definitely. Because, yeah, it, it, I know Which, it's like, I have to watch everything that I say. Like, what I yes. can't ask. So <laughs> I was going to say this before about the classroom thing, where it's like, I just, I have so many memories of, again, being the only one in the class. Mm-hmm. And then I I had so many times where I'm like, should I answer this question? Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's right. And I wouldn't say it. I ended up being right or like, whatever, maybe wrong. Yes. But I, I have so many things of like, these all these boys would answer and they'd be very confidently yes. wrong and then there'd be no like pause right yes. like I feel like when if I would answer and I'd be wrong I maybe it was psychological like I felt the pause and like I'd be embarrassed for the whole day I'm like yes. oh my god I'm the only girl and I'm an idiot or like yes. I said something stupid it's like no it doesn't yes. work like that yeah. but that takes a lot of it has taken me a long time to mm-hmm. get over that mm-hmm. and like be also, I don't like the word confidence because I think it gets used incorrectly. It has mm. nothing to do with confidence, right? It has, it's like a more of a situational thing. It's like yeah. you can be plenty confident and then still feel like very spotlighty. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, it's crazy how I didn't know that anybody else felt that way. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was more because of my own social anxiety and mm-hmm. not wanting to be wrong mm-hmm. and raising my hand and everyone, I don't know, scoffing at yeah, my answer. Yeah. But I know a lot of people who have no issue being wrong. Yeah. And I think it's because they don't have the burden of the representation. You don't feel like you're carrying all these people. Exactly. Not it was actually not that recent, but in 2016, I went to a conference. I think I've told you the story, Society for Neuroscience. And at every single point where I was either interacting with people who were not necessarily attending the conference, but either custodial staff or helping with the actual administration of the mm-hmm. conference, handing out badges and booklets and things like that. If it was a person who looked like me, they would they would pause and they'd go, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. like we're so proud of you. Mm-hmm. And for the rest of the day, I'm like, I carry that with me. Like these yeah. are my, my, my sisters, yeah. my uncles, my aunties who actually want me to do well. But you know, also, it's like, yeah, 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 like, exactly. God yeah, forbid yeah. I do something wrong and yeah. all of them are just, I don't know, I'm sure they wouldn't be, but you really do internalize yeah. that as a burden, yeah. which, yeah, it, it's not fair. And I, I wish there was, there was a way to not do that. But the only way I know how mm-hmm. to not feel that way is to not feel like you're the only person of your group. Yeah. Because then maybe you share the burden. I don't know. But you also, it just, it doesn't exist as a true burden anymore. Mm-hmm. There is a society, and I don't know if all schools have this, but I hope they do. This uh, like women in science and engineering, but it's graduate women in science mm. and engineering, so GYs. So recently we had an event where um, Kim Churches came to visit, and she's the CEO of the American Association of University of Women, mm. and she was a phenomenal speaker. Shout out to her. Like, I was so inspired, and, like, you really need these inspiration things in grad school. Yeah. So she said this thing I cannot get out of my head because it's so accurate, and I'm definitely going to get – the specifics of it wrong but she was like if you have one woman it's like a token right it's just like i need to let one woman if you put two of them then they're gonna get competitive like it's gonna be competitive because it's like oh this one's good it's like you need three or more like you need a percentage of them to be and by them i mean like your employees or your whoever your cohort to be uh have diverse backgrounds so that you can stop pinpointing them just for being different and they can be the actual person that they are right that's so important yeah do you think there will ever come a point where, and I've heard this argument before, I disagree vehemently, so I'm curious what your thoughts are as well. There are people who believe that having quotas mm-hmm. will at some point become detrimental to what is now the majority, which in STEM fields, it's men. And so there are a lot of schools that are saying, okay, for the higher levels of academia, we're going to set a quota of, I don't know, 40% women or 30% because the numbers are still really low mm-hmm. at the professor level. 
there's a fear and it always gets thrown out of, but what if it goes the other way? What if higher levels of academia become predominantly women? What are we going to do then? We're going to need fine. affirmative action. Thing. That's totally fine. No worries. <laughs> we can think? make up for the millennia of male-dominated stuff. That's fine. Sorry that came out mean. But that is definitely what I think. There's like everybody's like, oh, there's women everywhere. It's like, there's been women everywhere. We are half of the people. Come on. Get it together. God. Yeah, so it's fine. I think it's totally fine. You can have quotas. But like, you know, I think uh, one way that I've I've heard about, I don't know if this is actually a thing, so maybe we shouldn't be discussing it, but one way that I've heard about that this can go wrong is it, beca- it becomes like you become resentful and it's like, mm-hmm. you know, as, with affirmative action in the United States, there's this thing where it's just like, oh, you got hired just because you're like of a certain ethnicity mm-hmm. or you have a certain skin color. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely probably going to happen, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I know of, yeah. Sorry, but I feel like that already happens. I yeah. think a lot of times when women get hired, oh, yeah, they definitely. go, oh, but there was probably another guy who could have done it better but they were trying to meet the quota which Mm -hmm. I think honestly just makes the person feel like they were never even going to be considered Mm -hmm. had they been Mm -hmm. you know compared on equal footing Mm -hmm. I don't think that's accurate complicated right yeah I've met some spectacular women yeah yeah. sometimes even better than the men at an equal position yeah but there's never that feeling of oh, but the guys only got hired because they knew somebody or because of their last name or because of how much money they had. That conversation doesn't happen as much. We do not discredit men as much as we discredit women. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be a universal thing. I don't Mm -hmm. think it's just North America. I don't think it's just STEM. I think it's generally a worldwide thing Mm -hmm. where we have to find reasons why women did not deserve it or minorities Mm -hmm. in general did not deserve the position that they were given Mm -hmm. as though history is a predictor of what today should look like. Mm-hmm. Well, if all scientists look like Darwin and they all look like Einstein, mm-hmm. well, they should continue to look like them because mm-hmm. that's what we know when we think of the word scientist. But I don't think that's fair and I don't mm-hmm. think that's true. And I think it makes the person feel like they are not worth their position or not worth the work that they've put in. Mm-hmm. Because all of the people that I know that have made it past the point of a PhD have put in a lot of effort. No one stumbles into mm-hmm. grad school and then stumbles out with a PhD. It doesn't I don't know. Really? Like, like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's Sometimes when you have a harder time, it seems like everybody around you is doing that. But I know. Yes. The logical part of my brain knows. Exactly. <laughs> not it's what's just happening, not even yeah. possible. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I don't think it's right to discredit anybody. I just wish it was kind of more universal than that mm-hmm. to, to feel that way. It's certainly complicated, and I definitely on no level claim to know any of the answers, but, you know, there ex- there do exist certain discrepancies between either people of different backgrounds or different genders or, like, you know, identities and all these things, mm-hmm. and so the way I view it is that those inequalities, or if there are any inequalities, exist because of the systemic inequalities that exist. So, mm-hmm. like, uh, one thing that I always think of is, or it's just, it's a recent story, but um, Stuyvesant, which is a, uh, I believe it's a private school in New York City, it's like mm-hmm. one of the top, it's the top school in uh, New York City, mm-hmm. uh, and so they recently accepted their next year, which included seven black students, however, ho- out of however, and like, if you've ever been to New York, you know, it's a very diverse uh, <laughs> place, so seven is not great out of however n- many numbers, unless it's like 14, but anyways, uh, and so I, I remember reading about that, and uh, certain people's reactions to that were, were like, okay, well, they're just hiring whoever is better, but then you don't think about, you know, so one thing I mentioned before that I, I feel very privileged to 
to come from the background that I did. Mm -hmm. And this is very clear to me that like, so I grew up in Massachusetts where they have some of the best schools in the program, like the best public schools in the program. And so where you go to school is dictated by, for example, where your parents work. And Mm -hmm. then the quality of your school is so highly dictated Mm -hmm. by the taxes that are paid. So then it becomes, if you're wealthy, you get a good education. Mm -hmm. Generally, that is the correlation, right? So if you're wealthy, you get a good good education. Mm -hmm. If you're not, you're, you don't, right? Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, there are, we are not blind in the United States. As of even 2019, (laughs) there are so many racial inequalities that exist, especially in urban city environments where different schools get different uh, resources and capabilities based on, you know, the majority of the students that attend that school. Mm -hmm. So it's extremely unfair. So, so I think just looking at it on one level and being like, okay, well, this person didn't perform as high, highly as that level mm-hmm. as the other person. So if there are two candidates, this person didn't um, perform as well as the other candidate. Mm-hmm. But I think we have to stop thinking about it of like, this is a girl, this is a boy, this is a whatever, right? Yeah. You have to think about their story, yes. especially for graduate school, because mm-hmm. I say this so many times, I feel like it should be just like tattooed on my forehead, but... <laughs> Graduate school is not about how smart you are. It's about how persistent you are. So, like, this ideology that, like, I want to be as smart as possible, so you aced your undergrad, I should go to grad school. That is not how that works. No, not at all. You are going to fail. So, or like, <laughs> and I don't mean you, the listener, just, like, everybody fails all the time in graduate school, where when you succeed, you're like, is this real? Like, is this a legitimate thing? Yeah. So, you, you're, you're by nature by design you're not supposed to succeed that much Mm -hmm. and so you know it becomes this like division thing where like you know people who are underperforming in uh, undergraduate and like based on whatever background you come from Mm -hmm. they're like well I wasn't smart enough for undergraduate I'm not going to go into graduate but Mm -hmm. really you have to be just persistent has nothing to do with how smart you are it's just can you search for this thing can you try to ask the right questions so it's Mm -hmm. it's really complicated I don't think that has ever been said to me in that way no And I think that's why so many individuals feel like grad school kicks them in the pants so hard Mm -hmm. because there is that mental equation of, Mm -hmm. oh, but, you know, I graduated with a 3.9 GPA. Grad school is going to be a breeze. What all I have to do is study. It's just more classes, right? Yeah, but that's that's not (laughs) not it at all. That's not how it is. And it seems like the kids who actually did better Mm -hmm. in undergrad who've never actually tasted failure Mm -hmm. are the ones who really do struggle the most because it's so, not unnatural, but it just is so far out of one's comfort zone Mm -hmm. that they panic and they freak Mm -hmm. out. And it's just like, how can I not be good at this? I've been good at everything that I've done thus far. And anything that I wasn't good at, I just dropped off to the side because why would I pursue that? I mean, I can definitely speak to that. Anything that I've ever done in my life that I wasn't good at, I stopped doing it a long time ago because I just didn't feel like it was worth my time. But I don't know why we don't tell students, not even at the undergraduate level, starting at high school, that first of all, intelligence does not equate performance Mm -hmm. in school. Although we do think that a lot. And that's why we think about, oh, perfect SAT scores Mm -hmm. and MCAT scores and whatever the test is. Tangible metrics, right? You said that before. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's just there are no tangible metrics for your performance in in your PhD or in grad school in general. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of interesting. You are a perfectionist and you notice Mm -hmm. that a lot of people around you are perfectionists. So Mm -hmm. like, how does this sit with the idea that like, you know, you don't necessarily have to be that smart to succeed in grad school? It's been a struggle in some respects because, I mean, I was kind of speaking about myself two sentences ago not being good at something can really take a hit yeah. to your self-esteem. Like you just don't 
know what to do to be better Mm -hmm. because back in the day you just studied harder or you studied Mm -hmm. better or you just figured out what you needed to do to get the better grade and it's not that I had perfect grades all the time but the one time I would not do so well, I'd come back so hard mm-hmm. and so strong. Yeah. That by the end of the semester, I, I didn't really That's have That's a way much. of persistence. That also shows your persistence. So, oh, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. I persevere probably far too much. <laughs> but you definitely need that. But that's not one of the qualities people talk about mm. in, in grad school. It's yeah. something that's really important. But, yeah, a lot of people are perfectionist, and they don't know how to handle when experiments don't go well. Mm. And especially when you're working with something that needs to have multiple repetitions, whether it's like a – a physical experiment or if it's um, in the clinic or something like mm-hmm. that there's, there's going to be variance there's going to yeah. be differences between batches so sometimes you feel like oh my god I did so well on this day yeah. if I do it again yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly the same way I'm going to get the same and that doesn't happen yeah. I've had so many experiences where I have like maybe a set of like five or six experiments that I'm yeah. supposed to do and I make certain decisions on the first experiment and then on the third one I'm like well, I'm such an idiot I should have done this let me start over like yeah. the first couple years you like you I also struggled with this thing and like now I'm just like just pick one and go just like be decisive yeah yeah, yeah. I definitely get that I do want to talk about ways people can reach out if they are feeling alone mm-hmm. especially in the later years of graduate school yeah I know the first couple of years are hard in their own way but I think when one you don't feel like there's an end in sight mm-hmm. or you feel like everything that you're doing is so flawed and broken and you don't have the papers that you're supposed to have what have you found other than like the community have you found reaching out to people within your program helpful like people who've graduated with their PhDs who have an idea of what timelines look like in your department Mm -hmm. has that ever been something that you sought out to kind of calm your own fears and your own self-consciousness about what you're doing Mm -hmm. I know I already said this a million times with female (laughs) mentors so more specifically you know when I started grad school I was a little bit out of my ways because it wasn't necessarily so I hadn't really planned on starting grad school at that time so I wasn't super prepared so what I had done both at that time and also kind of towards the end of my undergrad is try to get close to people who are like in the midst of their PhDs mm-hmm. just to hear about their experience. Cause there's one thing to read on a brochure, but it's another to actually see their day to day and like course. understand that. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's been really helpful, but yeah. like now I'm getting to the end of it. So I feel grateful to have had that. Um, it, like the, I just, I keep hearing the words of advice from the older mm-hmm. PhD students who now have a job or now, now have a postdoc or like all those things. So, but in terms of loneliness, uh is that is that what the question was basically um yeah I don't know it's pretty sad get a cat I don't have no idea (laughs) I have no idea also don't get a cat because it'll die if you don't take care of it but yeah um I mean it's really hard I think it helps to know it's not forever right so that really helps Another thing is, yeah, so just to uh, briefly talk about Double Shilix, which is another podcast I was listening to this morning. Um, it's just the connection between your work and the loneliness comes from, like you said, the rejections, not the rejections, but like the failures and all yeah. these things that go wrong. So the connection, your emotions to the ups and the downs of the research, mm-hmm. they really have to be managed such that it's strong enough that you care and you come to work and you do a good job but not strong enough that affects you right and that that really I've gotten better at that 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 like you know I used to do this thing where it's like I would you know plan an experiment for the whole day and then like maybe at eight o'clock I'd be like if I just put in two more hours of work and I'd just be there till midnight and it wouldn't work and then now I'm just like you know what if this, even if it fails because of me, it's okay. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's totally fine. This is one piece in the giant, you know, 
I don't want to say puzzle, but puzzle of, <laughs> of grad school. So that kind of helps is to not dissociate, but to be like, you know, my research is my research and me is me. Like I am yeah. a different person. Yeah. And I know you said besides your community, but the community really helps. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. And like, you know, other grad students, I, I gravitate more towards the female grad students just mm-hmm. because the stories are similar and that mm-hmm. you can kind of let loose a little bit without being like, oh, maybe, you know, sometimes when I complain to like the older Guy students, I, I don't want them to ever respond, be like, oh, do you feel like that's because you're a girl or because you're sensitive? It's like, no, yes. it's because it's valid. Yes. So, you know, uh, that in that way, that's uh, I know people are like, well, you're biased. It's like, no, because the experience is much better in that way and that you can communicate with them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How about you? How What have you found to be helpful? Having a partner helps. I think I also got lucky with my PI. Mm-hmm. She is very supportive. I think she actually wants me to succeed. Not that's I think fantastic. I know she yeah. wants me to succeed and that's a big part of it. And my parents. Yeah. Again, the community yeah. having a support group. And I often joke with my mom that I'm not getting a PhD on my own. Like we all are because <laughs> they're cute. all so yeah, involved. Yeah. And they listen to my talks, even though half the time I think they, they don't quite that's understand so nice. it at a deep yeah. level, but yeah. that's okay. They still ask questions, yeah. which is really sweet as yeah. well. Feeling like what I'm doing is not a singular effort mm-hmm. can be a good and a bad thing, kind of like what we talked about before. Mm-hmm. But the good thing is it's a shared burden yeah. too. Yeah. So if I'm going into my committee meeting, I get a bunch of texts yeah. in a WhatsApp group saying, you know, good luck. That's Let us so know nice. how it yeah, goes. Yeah. Take a photo and that kind of thing. And having someone who's also within the exact same field and knows what it's like to feel the pressure, especially from your PI when they're in grant writing season or when they're in paper writing season and they're like, we just need to get things out the door, Mm -hmm. put together your stuff. And knowing that if I have to be home late, it's not this guilt trip. It's not like, but you said, yeah, yeah. because he understands that I know, I know what I said. I know I said, I would thought I was going to be done at five 30, but things went light and now be home at seven. Mm -hmm. And knowing that when I get home, he'll still be just as happy to see me then as he would have been happy to see me at five 30 and vice versa. Yeah. That's a blessing in so many ways. It's, it's nice to have a support system. I don't think anyone can truly do a PhD on their own, whether their family is here or away or their PI travels a lot. Mm -hmm. You just, you always have people that you rely on Yeah, or things that you rely on. Yeah. It's like video games or music. Yeah. 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 Also, quick thing. Uh, I know of grad students whose PIs don't let them go to like conferences and stuff. I've loved going to conferences. You should, like you were saying, alone. It's like that, like meeting other grad students or like maybe other PIs that you like know from papers. It's such an experience of like my work matters. And then other people that you only see on paper, seeing them in real life, like, oh my God, you're a real person. Like, let me discuss stuff with you. Uh, That's, that's, I want to like definitely say that. Like, if you get an opportunity, Opportunity. And now more and more each department, maybe if your PI doesn't have funding for you to go to conferences, I know departments more have like um, travel funding and like all yeah. these things. And like you can always reach out to the chair and be like, hey, I want to come, but I don't have money or like whatever. Like we don't have money in the grant. Yeah. Um, definitely go to as many conferences as you can. They're really uh, it's weird to say conferences are good for your mental health because you like stress out a lot before you're like making the slides, yes. making the poster or whatever. <laughs> but I found them to be really, really nice way of uh, actualizing my research mm. and being able to say, here's my place in the field. Yeah. Please listen to me. Funding for this episode was provided by the Javad Mafafagian Center for Brain Health and the Graduate Program in Neuroscience at the University of British Columbia.
I'd also like to say a massive thank you to absolutely everybody who listened to our very first episode. The feedback has been insanely positive thus far, and we can't wait to continue our Herside journey with you. And as always, don't forget to follow us on social media on Twitter at her underscore science and on Instagram at neuro.nerds. Peace and blessings. Psh, 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 psh.